Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. We're in, uh, I don't know, whatever, fourth or fifth or sixth week of our Heaven series, and um, if you haven't been with us or if today's your first time, you can catch all of the rest of them online uh, and listen to them. Um, They all kind of work toward what we're going to talk about today. And really what we're talking about today is, is found in the context of the verses that I just read. And that long passage that I just read was a passage that tells about a specific event at a specific point in the future history of the world. And it involves you and I, it involves all of humanity, it involves all of heaven, actually. It involves the whole creation and the cosmos that God has created. And, and this, this event that we read about is literally the kingdom of God in its fullness being restored on the earth. And so if, if you've been tracking with us or if today is sort of your first time in, we've, we've covered some, some high points in our discussion of heaven and we've covered the reality that heaven actually isn't about where we go for eternity. It's about God coming down here on this earth that we were made from the dust for the earth, that God has actually always intended us to rule and to reign with him on the earth. This is what we're made for. This is our home. This is, he's designed us specifically to thrive and function on the earth. And so when we talk about heaven, we're not talking about sort of this sweet by and by that's this disconnected, disembodied spirit place that no one knows where it is. We're actually talking about a real place with real people at a real point in time. We've talked about over and over again this this law of continuity that we find in the scriptures that that God isn't just going to erase everything, that history isn't erased and culture isn't erased and the things that, that man has done creatively to honor and glorify God won't be erased. That there's a, a, a new kingdom that's going to come down and that new kingdom is going to be a renewed and restored and reinvigorated kingdom based on the heart of God as it originally was. We've talked about this idea that, this false idea that somehow God has lost the battle. And so he's forced to wipe the slate fully clean and start over again. But that's not true. God hasn't lost the battle. He hasn't. He's not done with you, he's not done with me, and he's not done with this earth. The devil is not going to have the last word in this story. So when Jesus brings this new city, we're going to talk about that city in a little bit. This is really the culmination of all of human history coming to this one point. The question is, how do we get to that point? And I want to just do a little bit of teaching this morning. So those uh, note cards you have, flip them over, get a pen out. There's going to be a ton of references. We're not going to be able to cover all of the verses, but, but I just want to take some time, again, as just a point of review even, to talk about how we get to the point at which we read about in Scripture today. So we're going to be talking about the history, really, the history of mankind 
the history of God. First thing that the Bible opens up with in the beginning of Genesis is creation. And so that's the number one thing that we need to start with. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Again, we've read this, but um, I'm going to read it again. So God created human beings in his own image. We were created right from the very beginning. We were created as sons and daughters of the king. Right from the very beginning, we were given royal ancestry. That's really important. We're going to talk about that later. But right from day one, God created Adam and Eve to be a prince, to be a king and a queen on this earth. That was their royal assignment. That was in their royal blood. Ever since that first spark of creation, God's heart toward us, his calling on our life was to rule and to reign with him as part of his family. Genesis 1, 27, 28. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, made them male and female. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So his initial mandate to man and woman was to govern his creation. Like a king sending out his sons and daughters, to rule his territory. God said, this is the earth. I've made you for it, and I've made it for you. My assignment to you is to carry your royal authority over the whole earth. Everything that's on the earth is under your control and your authority. It's so key. That was God's heart right from the beginning. That man, as his sons and daughters, were at the top at the top of the authority chain on the earth. We weren't walking around, um, you know, wondering who was in charge, that it was actually Adam and Eve that were in charge. So number one creation, Robert, if you could throw that up there. We're gonna track along. You can maybe draw this diagram too. Number two, so the second thing that happens, we don't know how long it took, but we abdicated our royal purpose. We sinned. We were tempted in the garden. And we believed that there was something that we could inherit, that we could obtain, that would make us like God. We were tempted by the devil, the serpent, as, it's call, as he's called in there. And in that tempting, we traded our royalty and divinity as sons and daughters for slavery. We traded our name in with this idea that we could be masters of our own kingdom, that we could be the captain of our own ship, that we could rule our own destiny. And in believing that lie, we exchanged our son and daughtership for slavery and sin. After that happened, number three, Death and darkness, sin began to, to increase its grip on the earth. Have you ever wondered, this is just anecdotal, I don't know um, if you've ever thought about this, but why does the Bible actually list people as being so old? 
in the Old Testament. Like, how did Adam live to be 900 years old? How did Methuselah live to be whatever it was, 1,000 years old? How did they live so long? Some scholars believe that it's actually, that's the progressive impact of sin on the earth. That man was designed to rule and to reign in purity forever with God. And when we abdicated that spot, sin began to increase its grip on the world. And we saw that grip of death and destruction beginning to entangle and ensnare one coil after another on humanity over and over and over again. Us desperately trying to reclaim what we had lost, but not having the authority or power to do it. This happened and took place over thousands and thousands of years. And then the Bible says at just the right time, number four, Jesus comes as the Son of God. At just the right time, when we needed him the most, God sent his Son into the world. You may have heard John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus steps into this world in some mystery that's beyond our ability to comprehend, fully God and fully man. Paul said that he humbled himself and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he left his divinity behind and came to the earth as a man who need to learn obedience by the things that he suffered, Paul said. That through growth and years and years and years of living a perfect life on this earth, he recaptured what was stolen from mankind. Paul calls him the first Adam. I want you to turn with me in Romans in the New Testament. Romans 5, verse 14 Romans 5, verse 14 to 19 says this. Now Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin, which we've talked about, and God's gracious gift. For the sin of the one man, Adam brought death to many, to all of us. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this one man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of the one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation. That's judgment from God. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace as his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. If you have a pen or a rule, I use a ruler for everything because I don't like unstraight lines, but underline that. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death. Jesus comes as the second Adam to recapture man's authority as sons and daughters on the earth. 
Number five, Jesus lives this perfect life, then he dies and rises again. Get this, I love this. So if Jesus is compared to Adam, Paul and the writers of the New Testament, even in the book of Revelation, John compares us to Eve. He says that we are his bride. God created man, and then he said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm actually going to make a partner for him. And in the same way, Jesus restores the authority of Adam, and he says, I don't want to do this alone. I don't want to do this by myself. I need a partner. I need a bride. I need a queen to rule with me. And the Bible calls the church, those who believe in Jesus, who have accepted his grace and forgiveness, the Bible calls them the bride of Christ. And so Jesus, going before us and ahead of us, has won a victory. And he said, come, let's restore God's plan for man to rule the earth again. Be my bride. Revelation 19, verses 7 to 9, says this. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself. That's you and I. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. If we flip back a little bit, Ephesians 5 Verses 22 and 23 say this. And this is an illustration that Paul is using here. He's actually equating uh, the relationship that we have to Jesus the same way that we would think of a husband and wife here on earth. That actually God says that marriage here on earth, we're not going to fully get into this, but is a mirror image of our relationship and the dynamic in relationship between us and God. And Paul says it this way, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So again, thinking of this analogy saying, look, your first responsibility on this earth is to submit to the Lordship of Jesus. He's gone before you. He did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And as his bride, we're called to submit to him. For the husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3 say this. For I am jealous for you. This is Paul speaking. With the jealousy of God himself, I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ, but I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. So Paul is drawing a direct correlation between who we are now on the earth and Eve in the creation account and story. Jesus came to establish the kingdom authority that Adam and Eve lost and gave away in the garden. Number six, Jesus will return. And so this is a timeline that we're going through. Number six, Jesus will return. 
And the first thing that he's going to do when he returns is he's going to judge the world. And he's the only one in a position to be able to do that. We can't act as judges of our own life. We can't act as arbitrators of what is good and right and wrong. And only he's qualified to actually justly render judgment to everyone on this earth. Revelation 20 Verse 11 to 15, this is a picture. So we've read Revelation 21. This is what happens before that kingdom comes down to the earth. I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne and the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according Get this, according to what they had done, as recorded in the books, the sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So Jesus is going to come back one day, and he's going to judge That first judgment is a judgment of faith, which is the gift of God. It's a gift of God. It's his gift to say to us, would you put your faith and your trust in Jesus? Would you actually surrender yourself and humble yourself before him and actually put your trust and faith in him? Would you exchange your desire to be the ruler and captain of your own destiny? Would you exchange this desire to be the one who is in charge and in control? The reality is that we we have no control over the next moment of our life, let alone what happens after we die. We are completely out of our depth. If you believe that God, is, that, that God is using a sliding scale of good versus bad and that every day he's kind of weighing it on the scales of balance, you're horribly mistaken. There is nothing you, can, uh, you and I can do to earn salvation. There's nothing we can do apart from acknowledging Jesus as Lord of our life, receiving the gift of eternal life. There's nothing we can do apart from that to earn the approval of God. It's impossible. And I wouldn't be faithful to God if I didn't stand up. Nobody likes to talk about judgment. But I'm going to be judged one day like you are for how I handled my life. And I'm going to be judged based on whether I told the truth or not, whether I cowered in fear and decided not to tackle hard things, things that we don't fully understand, things we don't know. I'm going to be judged based on what I do and what I say, how I led the people around me, what I modeled in my life. And I cannot stand before the Almighty God and say, I'm sorry I didn't tell them that it's your grace that saves us and that it's a momentary decision to give our lives to Jesus that impacts our eternal destiny. You can reject God all you want, but he will honor your choice on this earth. If you decide that you don't need him, 
if you decide that you're better suited to control your destiny, if you decide that you're going to try and work it out through good stuff versus bad stuff, he will honor your choice. And when that moment comes, when Jesus returns, the question is going to be simple. Whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Who surrendered their life to Jesus? doesn't mean you and I are perfect by any stretch of the imagination. It doesn't mean we have everything sorted out and figured out. Oh, the contrary. It just means we recognize our need for a Savior. It means we recognize that we can't fix ourselves. It means we recognize that this idea that somehow if our good stuff outweighs our bad stuff by the end of our life, that will just skate through. So when Jesus returns at this specific moment in history, it's the first judgment that's going to happen. The second judgment that will take place is a judgment of works. And he's going to look at you and I and say, what did you do with the life I gave you? How did you steward it? How did you lean in and invest in other people? How did you live for eternity, not for the present? You see, you know, there's this idea we have that in this phrase is super common. We've only got one life to live. Well, if you actually believe the Bible, you'll realize that's categorically untrue. We all have two lives to live. Our eternity on the other side of death will be determined by what we believe. And for those who have accepted Christ and his grace of forgiveness and his mercy, the second question then is, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with the life that I gave you? So after that judgment, number seven, Christians will be resurrected in physical bodies. This is the cornerstone of what we believe from the Bible, that we're not resurrected as immaterial, spiritual ghosts or vapors, that um, we're not just, we don't enter into nothingness. And I don't know how that's exciting for anyone anyway. How is nirvana exciting for anyone? Like I just get to become nothing. What's so exciting about that? That's depressing. Everything in me rails against that. Like, what do you mean that's the goal of your life is to become nothing? The goal of my life is to become everything that God intended me to be. To walk in purity and authority and in joy and in hope. To experience the goodness and glory of God. The Bible says that his whole cosmos shouts a glorious, triumphant glory to who he is. That every square inch of it reveals a new facet of him. To me, what's exciting is, is an eternity to plumb the depths of the glory of God, seeing it expressed in everything that he's created and everything he's made us to do. Revelation 21, which we read, is the depiction of a specific event, this new Jerusalem coming down. Now, I just want to talk really briefly. It's interesting that... This new Jerusalem, this city that's described, I want to highlight a couple things to you. One, it's described in incredible detail, more detail than a lot of the other kind of 
things about heaven that are described. And two, the angel keeps referencing the measurement of man. And I believe that's actually a signpost that's a bit of an indicator that he's saying, look, like this isn't just allegory we're talking about. This isn't just metaphor I'm using. It's not just fancy language that there's actually some substance to what I'm describing to you. The measurement of man indicates that it's by our standard of what we know to be real and true and right. It's what we can understand. And so he describes it there. Um, that city is described like a cube with each of its sides being 2,200 kilometers. 2,200 wide, 2,200 high. I have a, a graphic for you of how large that city would be if you placed it in North America. That would be the size. That's exactly the size of this city. It would stretch from Canada down to Mexico, from the Appalachians to the border of California in its size. And the Bible says that actually um, its height is equal to its other proportions, that it'll stretch 2,200 kilometers up from the earth. Imagine that, like, we can't even grasp that. That's actually above that's actually above where the International Space Station, it would have to like move out of the way and you know, kind of reorient itself around that. But it's described in this great detail as this majestic and glorious place with 12 foundations, literally meaning this is so solid, it's, it's incorruptible, it's undestroyable, the walls being so thick. Speaking of security and peace, I love how it says the gates will never be shut. You know, in the ancient Near East, they shut the gates on the city at night for safety and security. And because the peace of Jesus will rule and reign on the earth, there'll be no need for that. That people will come and go, I don't know if you caught that, that, that kings of the earth will come from all the corners of the earth and bring their treasures into this city. The city where the throne of Jesus is. Where a river of life flows from it. This majestic, beautiful, powerful city. The dimensions of it are, and the shape of it is actually resembles the inner place of the temple, the Holy of Holies, it was called in ancient Jerusalem. It's the same cube shaped and it's lined with gold and you can read it all there. Just this majestic and beautiful place will be a place for us to come into and revel and marvel at the glory of God. What do we find in cities? Why do they call it a city over and over and over again? Cities have culture. They have buildings. They have people group. They have diversity. They have relationships and friendships. There's productivity. There's all of these things that we associate in our world today with a city will be found there. We don't walk in or float in as ghosts to just nothingness all around us wondering what we're going to do. We walk in and every facet, every corner, every bit of architecture will shout and declare how good and marvelous God is. It will all reflect his goodness.
in that city and from that city, it says Jesus's kingdom will cover the earth. Psalm 72, verse eight to 11 says this, may he reign from sea to sea and from the Euphrates rivers to the ends of the earth. Desert nomads will bow before him. His enemies will fall before him in the dust. The Western kings of Tarshish and other distant lands will bring him tribute. The Eastern kings of Sheba and Seba will bring him gifts. All kings will bow before him and all nations will serve him. In Daniel 7, it talks about his kingdom being over the whole earth, that he will rule and reign for eternity. What does he invite us to do? What does he invite us back to? He invites us back into the original mandate of Adam and Eve, and that's actually our inheritance. Our God-given inheritance is to rule with Christ. Pastor Herm quoted it this morning, a little bit of it, but I want to read to you from Romans 8, 16 and 17. It says, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Nothing will compare with that. Every tree and shrub, every animal on this earth is waiting for the day when God will reveal who he is and will invite us to reign. Ephesians 1, 5 and 7. Paul says this, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family and bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. That is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Goes on to say, he showered us with his kindness along with wisdom and understanding. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. So now you Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made a part of his dwelling where God lives by his spirit. God's desire for us is that we actually rule and reign with Christ for eternity. What is so amazing about all of this is that that because of what Jesus did on the cross, he invites us, even in this present fallen world, to walk in that same ruling victory and authority. You know, horrific things may have happened to you in your life. You may have experienced unconscionable things in your life, and that grieves the heart of God. But in a spiritual sense, in a spiritual context, none of us are victims. 
In the spiritual realm, when you accept Christ, you move from slavery to sonship or daughtership. In one moment, you move to a position of authority and power. And God's invitation to you and I is to begin right here and right now, walking in the authority and power of God. Yet for some reason in your life and my life, we become punching bags to the enemy. We just take everything. We take it all. We take hit after hit. We're down on the ground and he's shoving our face and all of our failures and our mistakes, everything that we've done, every failure, every sin, everything we're depressed about and ashamed about. He's taking them all and he's just giving us hit after hit. And somehow we've bought into this lie that that's our lot in life. That somehow we deserve it. That somehow there's nothing we can do about it. And Jesus says, look, I came and I defeated sin and death. And right here and right now you can walk in victory and authority. Right here in the spiritual places. You can say no to the enemy. I am not your punching bag anymore. I'm a son and I'm a daughter of the Most High. I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in me, who's sent from God. I'm not my own anymore. I've been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus covers all of my sin. And Jesus is inviting the church to stand up. Stop wallowing in self-pity. Stop walking around like a victim spiritually and stand in the authority and the inheritance that God purchased for you with the death of his son Christ. You're not a spiritual victim. You're a son and you're a daughter. Your inheritance is to reign on this earth. Paul said that we will judge angels even. Standing in authority over God's angelic realm. We don't become angels. We actually will stand in judgment over them as his sons and his daughters. And his invitation to you and I is to walk in that today. Man, there's so much more I want to say. The question is, what blocks us from this? I believe one of the things that block us, Jesus talked about in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, verse 19 and 20. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of heaven that's Next, you know, I heard it described this way. Death is not a wall, it's a turnstile. Death is not the end, it's not the finality. It's just a turnstile into our actual full created reality. Jesus is teaching about that. And he says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moth eat them and rust destroy them and where thieves break in and steal, store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. I believe that one of the things that stops us from walking out our authority on this earth as sons and daughters of God is we don't believe what Jesus just said. 
We don't believe that he's storing anything great up for us. We don't believe there's something to live for and to work toward. We don't believe there's something to pour our our passion and our life into. We struggle to imagine what could possibly happen on the other side of death that would be better than the highest peaks of our life. And we ask this question, have we reached our peak? Do we spend more time reflecting on the good old days? On the days gone by, those days where we felt like everything came together and life made sense and we experienced this incredible joy and we spend our life looking back at these going, God, I I feel like I've reached my peak. And God is saying, no, you haven't reached your peak. In fact, you haven't even really started yet. I want to show you this little illustration of what I mean when it talks about reaching the peak of life. And Jesus is saying when he's laying out this this theology and this, this idea of eternal rewards, he's saying, look, even the best things that you experience in this life, even the best moments that you've experienced, that, that moment of utter joy and jubilation, that's nothing compared to the treasure that I have waiting for those people who will give their lives to me, who will surrender themselves. But we believe that this is the peak, whatever that moment is for you, whatever that event was, whatever that thing is that you're looking back on and, and, and mourning the, the loss of, the thing that you're looking back on or that circumstance or those events that you're looking back on and going, God, I, somehow I'm, I don't want to go to heaven because I missed that. That's the devil tricking us into not understanding what's going to happen and We may even see death as the lowest point, but it's not. It's just a turnstile. For those who know Jesus, it's a turnstile into the intermediate heaven, which will be so much better than what we experience on this earth. And then when Revelation 21 happens and Jesus brings the new Jerusalem down and he comes to this earth to reign, we'll begin the real ascent to our peak, an ascent that will leave us searching like explorers for eternity, uncovering more of our purpose and our destiny and the goodness and the glory of God. Anything that you've experienced on this earth will seem like dust in comparison. Those greatest moments of our lives on this earth will seem like nothing compared to the the glory of walking with Jesus on this earth for eternity. Jesus said in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of heaven. And all of this stuff, guys, if you put your heart and your focus toward Christ, if you actually make God the most important thing in your life, don't you realize that his heart is to bring everything else around you and bless you beyond your wildest dreams and imaginations? And even if it doesn't happen here on the earth, he's got something waiting for you if you finish strong, if you keep your eyes focused on him. He's got a reward and a prize waiting for you that is unimaginable. We can't fathom it. And so he's saying, you haven't hit your peak. I was thinking about this this week. Uh, I read something and an author described this sort of like a fish in a fishbowl and asking the question, do they really know how depressing it is, their life, (laughs) right? Just swimming around in a circle with a glass bowl that's like eight inches wide. And 
I immediately, right away, went to think of Marineland, right? Locally here. I'm not going to make any political statements about Marineland, but, right, what's the slogan, right? Everybody loves Marineland, right? Except for the whales and the fish and all of the other animals that are stuck there. <laughs> I'm sure they wouldn't agree with the marketing pitch of the company. But I, what I wonder, I was, I was thinking about that, is did God hardwire into these beings and these creatures this desire for something greater than what they experience? Did they know that they were made for the wide open ocean? Do they remember living in freedom maybe sometime? Do they know that the tank isn't all there is, that there's so much more? And do we know that this life, this tank that we're in, is just a temporary container? Do we realize that we're created for something so much more? We're built for the ocean. We're built to explore, we're built to glorify God, and yet, like these animals, we live in these tanks, and we, we just kind of bump our heads on the glass, and we stare at the funny-looking people on the other side. And we just go, oh, I guess this is it. I guess grade eight grad was as good as it gets, maybe if you're in grade nine. <laughs> maybe my university days, my glory days, you know? captain of the rugby team and all that stuff. Maybe that was my peak. Feels like it sometimes. <laughs> and we just swim in circles. We buy into this lie of the enemy that the tank is all there is. And so we claw and we grab and we try and get everything we can. We consume and we live for pleasure on this earth and we, we want to grab everything we can. We want to absorb everything we can and we, we give into lust and greed and we, we make horrible decisions because we're chasing fantasy and we're chasing this illusion that the tank is all there is. And so because it's all there is, we've got to just take, 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 take. And God is saying, no, the tank isn't it. You can actually give, give, give. And one day, receive, receive, receive. You know, we have team night tonight. And I believe if you, God has wired you and I to serve and to give. And one day he's going to ask you, what did you do with your life? And what are you going to say? I just swam around in the tank and I just took whatever I could. I just lived for pleasure. I just live to gratify my desires? Or are you going to say, I gave, I gave, I gave. I sacrificed. I gave to you, God, financially. I released resources to you. I, I sowed into your kingdom and into the church. Paul said in Galatians, don't be tricked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Are you sowing irrational generosity? into the church and into the world around us. We are as a church, are you following us? Are you trusting God with what little you have? Are you serving and giving your life for other people? What are you doing with what you have? The tank isn't all there is. But in Revelation 13, John says that the devil comes and his goal 
is to slander God. He wants you to believe something about God that's not true. He slanders God's people. He wants you to believe things about yourself that aren't true. And he slanders our eternity, our home with God. He wants you to believe that the tank is all there is. Why don't you stand up with me? I'm going to close with this verse, Philippians 3. Philippians 3, verse 13 and 14. This is how Paul described his life. Well, verse 12. He said, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. But I focus on one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what is ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Jesus Christ, is calling us. I'm not looking again in the past. I'm not dwelling on my failures. I'm not dwelling on the things that seem to define me in years past, but I'm looking forward because I haven't peaked yet. This tank is not all there is, and God has got something greater for me that I'm living my life's purpose for. I'm discovering how he's made me and how he's wired me. I'm discovering what it means to give extravagantly and irrationally, to give my life and to give my resources, to give my energy and the best of me to other people so that God, when I reach that finish line, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little, so I'll put you in charge of much. So what's it going to take for you and I to stop looking in the rearview mirror and believing we've already peaked? What's it going to take for us to stop swimming in circles, just taking, 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 hoarding, hoarding, hoarding? God, I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, so, so I'm going to have to save this, and I, I can't use this, and I need to hold on to this. And What's it going to take for us to trust him with our future, to give like no one's ever given of our time? in our life. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.